Good morning and welcome to the Hilton second quarter 2023 earnings conference call. All participants will be in the listen-only mode. Should you need assistance, please signal a conference specialist by pressing the star key followed by zero. After today's prepared remarks, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star, then one. To withdraw your question, please press star, then two. Please note, this event is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to Jill Chapman, Senior Vice President, Investor Relations and Corporate Development. You may begin. Thank you, MJ. Welcome to Hilton's second quarter 2023 earnings call. Before we begin, we would like to remind you that our discussions this morning will include forward-looking statements. Actual results could differ materially from those indicated in the forward-looking statements, and forward-looking statements made today speak only to our expectations as of today. We undertake no obligation to update or revise these statements. For a discussion of some of the factors that could cause actual results to differ, please see the risk factor section of our most recently filed Form 10-K. In addition, we will refer to certain non-GAAP financial measures on this call. You can find reconciliations of non-GAAP to GAAP financial measures discussed in today's call in our earnings press release and on our website at ir.hilton.com. This morning, Chris Nassata, our President and Chief Executive Officer, will provide an overview of the current operating environment and the company's outlook. Kevin Jacobs, our Chief Financial Officer and President Global Development, will then review our second quarter results and discuss our expectations for the year. Following their remarks, we'll be happy to take your questions. With that, I'm pleased to turn the call over to Chris. Thank you, Jill, and good morning, everybody. We appreciate you joining us today. We're excited to report strong second quarter results with REPAR, adjusted EBITDA, and EPS exceeding our expectations. Adjusted EBITDA for the quarter hit a record $811 million, the highest single quarter in our company's history. Performance continued to be driven by solid fundamentals along with continued share gains. Our industry-leading brands, strong commercial engines, and powerful partnerships continued to strengthen our system and differentiate us from the competition, while a culture of innovation continued to fuel additional growth opportunities. Despite macro challenges over the near term, we're confident in our ability to continue driving solid top-line and bottom-line growth and, in turn, growing free cash flow. Given the strength of our results thus far and our expectations for the rest of the year, we're increasing our guidance for return of capital for the full year to between $2.4 and $2.6 billion. Turning to results in the quarter, system-wide REPAR increased 12.1% year-over-year as strong demand drove continued uh, pricing power across all segments. System-wide occupancy improved more than four points during the quarter, to reach 77% in June, our highest level post-pandemic. Business transient REPAR remains strong, growing 11% year-over-year as trends continue to normalize. Leisure REPAR increased 7% versus last year, driven by solid rate growth and despite more difficult year-over-year comparisons. Group recovery remained robust in the quarter, with REPAR growing 19% year-over-year. Compared to 2019, system-wide REPAR grew more than 9% in the quarter, with all segments performing well versus prior peaks and accelerating sequentially versus the first quarter. Stable demand and rising rates drove leisure REPAR growth of 26% versus 2019, 
and business transient growth of 6%. Group REPAR was roughly flat versus prior peak levels and improved versus the first quarter. As we look to the back half of the year, we expect continued strength driven by recovery in international markets, business transient, and group demand. On the group side, we continue to see very positive trends. Our bookings in the quarter for 2024 arrivals grew 30%, with group position now at 13% up, driven by the corporate segment. And our sales team saw the largest revenue bookings in our history for all future arrival periods. Based on all of that, we now expect full-year repar growth of between 10 and 12%. Turning to development, we signed more than 36,000 rooms in the second quarter, representing the largest quarterly signings in our history. Conversions accounted for nearly a third of signings in the U.S. Signings in international markets doubled versus last year, accounting for roughly half of system-wide signings in the quarter, driven by strong momentum across Europe and Asia-Pacific. In Europe, we signed agreements across 14 countries, including our first tapestry hotel on the French Riviera and our first curio in Croatia. In China, Hilton Garden Inn continued to show tremendous growth since launching our new franchise business model. In the quarter, we signed approximately 3,700 HCI rooms in China, more than three times last year and accounting for more than a third of our signings in China. Signings in America were up 20 in the Americas were up 25% year over year with strong interest in the US despite tighter credit conditions. We've signed more than 50 true hotels year to date representing the strongest pace since 2017 as the operating uh, success of existing true properties is leading to a surge in new signings. Results were further helped by Spark, with approximately 60 hotels signed and another 400 in negotiation just six months since its launch. Nearly all deals are conversions from third-party brands, and half represent new owners to Hilton. With our first Spark scheduled to open in September and roughly 20 by year-end, Spark is well-positioned to disrupt the premium economy segment while expanding our customer and owner base, especially in markets where there is no Hilton brand presence today. In addition to the strong start for Spark, we recently launched an inventive new extended stay brand in the U.S. Under the working title Project H3, the apartment-style accommodations are designed for guests booking 20 or more nights, built with the staying power of Hilton's award-winning hospitality. We have received tremendous interest from owners and developers, Due to the strong market opportunity, cost-efficient build, and high-margin model, we currently have more than 300 deals in negotiation. Our system-wide pipeline now stands at a record 3,000 properties, totaling approximately 441,000 rooms, increasing 7% year-over-year and 3% from last quarter. Following another strong quarter of starts, up more than 73% year-over-year, roughly and and over 40% year to date roughly half of our pipeline is currently under construction we have more rooms under construction than any other hotel company ensuring guests will have even more options to stay with us in the years to come specifically in the US our under construction pipeline has continued to increase up 15% year over year 
which will contribute to increased openings later this year and next. In fact, in the coming weeks, we're going to open nearly 2,000 additional hotel rooms in New York Times Square with the debut of our first ever Tempo by Hilton and a new tri-brand property featuring Home 2 Suites, Hampton Inn, and Motto. In the quarter, we celebrated several milestones, including the openings of our 2900th Hampton Inn and our 600th Home 2 Suites property, which remains one of the fastest-growing brands in the industry. Additionally, we surpassed 150,000 rooms in Asia Pacific, including the openings of the Hilton Okinawa Miyako Island Resort in Japan and the Conrad Shenzhen, our first luxury hotel in China's thriving technology hub. We expect openings to accelerate as the year progresses given strong international and conversion trends and expect conversions to account for around 30% of openings. For the full year, we expect net unit growth of approximately 5%. With forecasts for our highest level of signings, the largest pipeline in our history, and approaching the largest under construction pipeline in our history, we expect net unit growth to accelerate to 5 to 6% next year and to return to 6 to 7% over the next couple of years. As part of our commitment to deliver exceptional experiences for guests, we remain focused on initiatives to drive increased loyalty and satisfaction. We know, for instance, that food and beverage experiences are an integral part of travel and want to ensure our hotels themselves are great dining destinations. We recently formed a first-of-its-kind partnership with the James Beard Foundation, serving as the premier sponsor of the 2023 Restaurant and Chef Awards, and continue expanding our partnerships with world-class talents such as Michael Mina, Jose Andres, Nancy Silverton, and Paul McGee. Hilton Honors remains the fastest growing hotel loyalty program with more than 165 million members, up 20% year over year, driven by strong growth across all major regions. Honors members accounted for 64% of occupancy in the quarter, up two points year over year. Hilton team members and our award-winning culture continue to differentiate our brands from the competition. Just yesterday, our Waldorf Astoria Home to and True brands were named Best in Category by J.D. Power for their respective segments in North America. Last week, was, uh, Hilton was again named as a top employer for millennials for the sixth consecutive year. Since 2016, we've been recognized by Great Place to Work as the world's best hospitality company in over 60 countries. We're thankful for the great work our team members do to serve our guests around the world. We have incredible opportunities ahead to further position ourselves as the leader in hospitality, and we're very excited for the future of travel. With that, I'll turn the call over to Kevin to give you a few more details on the quarter and expectations for the full year. Thanks, Chris, and good morning, everyone. During the quarter, system-wide RevPAR grew 12% versus the prior year on a comparable and currency-neutral basis. Growth was driven by strong demand growth in APAC, as well as continued strength in leisure and steady recovery in business transient and group travel. Adjusted EBITDA was $811 million in the second quarter, up 19% year over year and exceeding the high end of our guidance range. Performance was driven by better than expected fee growth, largely due to better than expected RevPAR performance, as well as strong performance in Europe and Japan, benefiting our ownership portfolio. 
Management franchise fees grew 16% year-over-year, driven by continued RevPAR improvement. For the quarter, diluted earnings per share adjusted for special items was $1.63, increasing 26% year-over-year and exceeding the high end of our guidance range. Turning to our regional performance, second quarter comparable U.S. RevPAR grew 6% year-over-year, with performance led by continued recovery in both business transient and group segments. Leisure demand in the U.S. remained strong, but grew more modestly year-over-year due to tougher comparisons. In the Americas outside the U.S., second quarter RevPAR increased 22% year-over-year. Performance was driven by strong group demand, particularly at our resort properties. In Europe, RevPAR grew 26% year-over-year. Performance benefited from continued strength in leisure demand and recovery in international inbound travel, particularly from the U.S. In the Middle East and Africa region, RevPAR increased 30% year-over-year, led by rate growth and strong demand from religious travel. In the Asia-Pacific region, second quarter RevPAR was up 79% year-over-year, led by the continued demand recovery in China. RevPAR in China was up 103% year-over-year in the quarter, an 18-point sequential improvement from the prior quarter, and 3% higher than 2019. The rest of the Asia-Pacific region also saw significant growth, with RevPAR excluding China up 52% year-over-year. Moving to guidance for the third quarter, we expect system-wide RevPAR growth to be between 4% and 6% year-over-year. We expect adjusted EBITDA of between $790 million and $810 million, and diluted EPS adjusted for special items to be be between $1.60 and $1.65. For full year 2023, we expect RevPAR growth to be between 10% and 12%. We forecast adjusted EBITDA of between $2.975 billion and $3.025 billion. We forecast diluted EPS adjusted for special items of between $5.93 and $6.06. Please note that our guidance ranges do not incorporate future share repurchases. Moving on to capital return, we paid a cash dividend of 15% cents per share during the second quarter for a total of $40 million. Our board also authorized a quarterly dividend of 15 cents per share in the third quarter. Year-to-date, we have returned more than $1 billion to shareholders in the form of buybacks and dividends, and as Chris mentioned earlier, we we now expect to return between $2.4 and $2.6 billion for the full year. Further details on our second quarter results can be found in the earnings release we issued earlier this morning. This completes our prepared remarks. We would now like to open the line for any questions you may have. We would like to speak with as many of you as possible, so we ask that you limit yourself to one question. MJ, can we have our first question, please? Of course. As a reminder, to ask a question, you may press star, then one, on your telephone keypad. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing the keys. To withdraw from the queue, you may press star, then two. At this time, we will pause momentarily to assemble our roster. Today's first question comes from Joe Graff with J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Morning, Joe. Uh, Not surprisingly, maybe uh, the first question uh, relates to your net unit growth uh, target for, for this year, approximately 5% uh, versus the 5 to 5.5% previously. Can you talk about what's driving that? I mean, how specific uh, to the U.S. is that? Can you talk about the rate of, of China development recovery 
Um, and then obviously uh, we all heard what your expectations are for, for next year in terms of net rooms growth. What, what gives you the confidence for that reacceleration and, and what specifically, whether it's brand or geographies, is driving that acceleration? Thank you. Yeah, great, great question. And no, I'm not surprised that that would be the first question. Um, you know, for the, for the record, I think on the last call, probably three different times I said around 5%. So I, I, the truth is, since our last call, um, I don't think our view has really changed much about um, where our NUG would be this year. Um, and so, it, you know, it is what it is. It, it was always a bit back-end loaded. And the, and the simple reason for that, Joe, um, is in the numbers. If you look at starts, what's been happening with starts, we had a big surge in starts in the second half of last year. Starts were up second half of 22, 40%. And if you look at um, what they are in the first half of this year, as I stated in my in my introductory comments, they're up 40%. So that means that a bunch of stuff is just translating into the second half of this year and into next year. And so it really is entirely sort of the timing of, of the, in the sequencing of how that happens. So we've, we thought it would be around five. We still think it will be around five. Um, our confidence in, you know, going, you know, back on the way back up, I do feel like if we look at the data, you know, it's not just you know, pure optimism, although everybody knows I'm an optimistic sort. I mean, if you look at the data, as I already said, you know, starts were way up in the second half of last year. They've been way up in the in the, in the the first half of this year. We continue to see good momentum there. Same with signings. I mean, we expect to, as I said in my comments, have a record year in signings relative to our prior peak. And, you know, that, that all of those things are translating into both our optimism about the second half of this year being much stronger than it than the first half and 2024 being much much better it's a bunch of different things that are uh, contributing to that um, it's really all regions even though arguably the US credit conditions are you know, make it more challenging you know as I already said we're still up you know year to day uh, over the last over the trailing 12 months, 15% in starts. Um, and we have some other nice things that are, you know, that are going to add to our growth here in the United States with Spark. You know, we're only going to open 20 this year. You should assume we're, we're going to open a lot more than that next year. And Home 3 will start, you know, contributing. H3 will start contributing next year. Probably not a ton, but, you know, that, you know, that, that is a much more financeable product, even even in today's environment, because it's probably more apartment than it is than it is hotel. Um, we are broadly having really good success on conversions, and Europe, which had been slow, has really started to pick up. And Asia Pacific, really led by China, has you know woken up, and the engines have not just restarted, but they're really starting to fire. On, on many more cylinders, I wouldn't say it's all the way there yet, but it, you know, in the second quarter, and our expectation for third and fourth is, you know, we're gonna we're gonna start to get a, a very good momentum, and so, you know, that's why we, you know, feel pretty darn good, the, you know, uh, on the on the nug for next year. Obviously, for giving you a range, I would sort of direct you to the middle of it. If you know, if some things go our way and the world 
stays relatively stable, you know, I think I think we can, you know, we can be mid mid range of that or above, but it's a little bit early in the year to, you know, to to go quite that far. We'll obviously next quarter and the following quarter we'll update you. But I think, you know, what I would say to people is again, it's it's objectively based on things that you know, success we're having in conversions, you know, the, you know, success we're having in demand for Spark, um, conversions all over the world, Spark here. By the way, we will take Spark to Europe relatively quickly. And just what we have, you know, in the pipeline, I mean, almost half of our uh, pipelines under construction, you know, more than anybody in the industry. And once they start, they, they almost always, always finish. So, um, that pickup starting in, in Q3 last year is, you know, is starting to pay dividends, and thankfully the pickup and starts has, has continued uh, everywhere uh, in the world. And as I said, the world's a big place, so there's a little bit more pressure in the U.S., even though the, our numbers are still good, but, you know, a lot less pressure in some other parts of the world that have been feeling it, which is, you know, the benefit of a big, diversified global business. Great. Thank you. The next question comes from Sean Kelly with Bank of America. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning, everyone. Thanks for taking my question. Um, I guess if we've covered the the net unit growth side, um, Chris will ask a little bit of the same around sort of the, the the RevPAR outlook. I'd like to gear it to sort of incremental, you know, kind of changes or upside for the second half. Just kind of what's the biggest difference to, you know, kind of your your, your prior outlook that gave you some confidence uh, there. And then, you know, just any pressures or concerns you're seeing on, you know, the leisure normalization point, it's a question we take a lot and just kind of maybe update us on the latest you're seeing as we move through some of these really tough comps in the summer, how's behavior out there, and, and what's going better or a little uh, worse than anticipated at this point. Yeah, happy to. So, yeah, we moved our numbers up for the second half of the year and, and thus impacted the full year. Um, that was done on the basis that we're just – seeing better results we you know as we say very regularly we we're not economists so we try and take that you know consensus view of what's going on in the macro the consensus view last quarter was that the second half of the year would see you know a little bit more meaningful slowdown i think the consensus view right now i mean you can pick somebody but it broadly is that it's going to slow down but it's more of a soft landing and later in the year and more into next year. And so when we factor for that and we look at the momentum, obviously we've already booked a half a year. Uh, and we look at what we have reasonable sight lines now into the third quarter, which we feel um, very good about. And as we look at the fourth quarter, we, you know, we would probably say the macro view is that things will slow. And so we've assumed that. Um, but probably the macro view is that they sow a little bit less than maybe last quarter. And so when you flush all that through, um, it results in an increase in our guidance. Now, you know, there's possible upside if, if the fourth quarter keeps going like we saw in the second and what it looks like we're going to see in the third, there may be, there may be potential. But it certainly warranted um, our increasing our guidance based, based on where, what we've already booked for the year, what we see and the macro view in the late part of the year. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, like, everybody wants to will the business backwards, but we don't really see it. I gave you the stats uh, on leisure, business transient, and group. You know, I gave you some 
sense of where we have, you know, really good forward-looking information, which is really on the group segment, remaining really, really strong. I mean, obviously, leisure is growing at a somewhat slower pace because of the comps, but, I mean, it's still way over um, the, high, the prior high watermarks. And business transient keeps grinding up and getting better, and the same with group. So as I'm sitting here today, honestly, while we will take a macro view of later in the year because we're not economists, we're not seeing any signs of weaknesses. You know, I know there's a lot of questions on the leisure business. I mean, what I would say to you is, like, we're not seeing – we're having a wildly strong summer in leisure. I mean, the only places where leisure has backed off a bit is where you would expect it, where it's normalizing from, like, crazy highs. Um, it's still in those markets, which I'll talk about, way over 19 levels. But, I mean, it's just sort of coming back, not even to earth, but, you know, sort of in our universe, I guess. And those are markets like South Florida, Hawaii, parts of Southern California, where it was just like it was, you know, it was insane. But broadly, we have a very diversified leisure business. Broadly, we're not really, again, other than cops being harder, you know, we continue to see good growth, and, and, and we expect to. And, you know, at least what sight lines we have into business transient, talking to a bunch of customers, which I've done very recently, and certainly our sales team talks to them all the time, and we, you know, got everybody together, as we always do last week, to talk about it. You know, they're feeling, you know, quite good, particularly the SMBs, which is at this point 85% plus of our business. You know, they're traveling more. They're feeling reasonably good about soft landing and their business. And then, you know, group. And there's pent-up demand there. And group, there's still um, huge amounts of pent-up demand that haven't been released. I said, you know, we're, we had the best booking quarter in our history ever, you know, in, in the second quarter. And our position is great for next year. And you're still not where you would, you know, where you're going to be with all the big associations because that was really driven by corporate group. So a bunch of the big association groups, I mean, they are booking, but – you know that's multi-year booking cycles. That's 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 still to to come. And so, um, you know, I I I we don't see weakness. Uh, obviously, you know, we're sentient and we know what the Fed is trying to do. We'll hear this afternoon. You know what the next steps are. I expect they are going to raise rates, but I do think we're probably getting to the end ish of that tightening cycle. Inflation is coming down. Some of the lag in, uh, indicators that will eventually come into the inflation numbers, housing in particular, is definitely real time coming down and will eventually show up. And so, you know, I, I do think we'll see. Again, I'm not an economist, but I do think consensus view is starting to center around a softer landing, maybe late this year, sometime next year. And that feels rational based on everything going on. And as I said, our business we're not we're not seeing any real cracks you know anywhere and of course the you know the places in the world that had been lagging are now starting to like produce so you know the the most significant lag everywhere was doing really well but China and now China is eclipsing prior high high water marks and getting going on development as I already said but also operationally eclipsing 2019 numbers so not to be a Pollyanna it all it all feels pretty good and if we can orchestrate a you know a slowdown but a reasonably soft landing, you know I think the rest of this year is going to be very solid and in line 
or better than what we said. And I think next year will be a darn good year because I still think, you know, there'll be strong strength in 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 leisure, but particularly there'll be if it, if you get a reasonably decent, you know, slowdown soft landing, you're going to have continued growth in in business transient, particularly with um, SMBs, which is the vast majority of the business. And group is going to be pretty sticky because people just have to do some of this stuff. And particularly in a soft landing environment, I don't, you know, I don't think you're going to see, you know, a big, a big, a big change there anytime soon. So it's early. I'm not going to, you know, like, obviously I'm not going to give guidance yet for next year. We're not. It's sort of crazy to do that. We got a lot of year to see how things play out. But I sit here today, I feel, I feel, I feel quite good about the rest of this year. I actually feel quite good about, you know, as we later this summer get into budget season, how we how we feel about next year. And that's reflected, as you, not surprisingly, in the guidance we're giving, the increase in our return of capital. I mean, I think that should be read for what it is. Thank you very much. The next question comes from Stephen Grambling with Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning. Morning, Stephen. I know you didn't, don't want to give 2024 guidance, but if we go all the way back to the, the split off, you had outlined this algorithm of 1% to 3% rev par growth kind of translating to 14 to 23% EPLs, EPS algorithm with kind of 6% NUG. You're talking about the reacceleration of NUG basically in that range, but what other changes in the business should investors be thinking through as we compare and contrast that algorithm to today? whether it's think, thinking about royalty rates or pipeline or other fees. Yeah, I think that the algorithm stands. I mean, and, and in fact, even, by the way, while uh, NUG has been a little bit lower, REPPAR has been higher. I mean, it, it, you know, it's a pretty pretty perfect hedge, meaning, you know, we've been running a little lower on one, a little higher on the other. My guess is it, it's going to flip around over the next couple of years. And as I said, we're going to get back to six to seven, and same store growth is going to normalize. But we think the algorithm is alive and well, and will deliver, you know, at, at those in those ranges that that we've talked about as a result of, you know, increased um, growth rates from where we are, increased license fee rates, overall rev par growth, um, you know, the deals that we've done on the licensing side, which you know generally drag us up because they're at or above algorithm growth rates. We we feel. We feel very good about that algorithm that we laid out in 2016, and that you know it's alive and well and producing. And as a result, we're producing today more free cash flow than we ever had in history, which is what allows us to return so much capital. And that will keep both of those things will keep going up as well. Easy enough. That's my one. Thank you. The next question comes from David Katz with Jeffries. Please go ahead. Hi, morning, everyone. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, I wanted to talk about just the strategic philosophies around brands. You've been highly productive at launching brands and just observing that, you know, a lot of the growth has been sort of in the, the, the middle and mid-scale and limited service, et cetera. Um, you know, do, how do you think about, you know, launching stuff potentially at the higher end or, you know, do you not? sort of want or need those or and just help us understand how you decide where to launch. Sure, David, thanks. Really good question. 
So, yeah, I got here um, with the Kevin and others about 16 years ago, and this company had nine brands that were pretty good but not performing that well. Today we have 22 brands. So, I, you know, we have, I think, really built up a, a very powerful sort of engine um, of innovation to figure out what customers want, what segments we're missing, and to and to give them uh, more of what they want and do it with very high-quality brands and then deliver commercial performance that's winning performance and market-leading performance so that we attract lots of capital. I don't think we have a brand, and we have some that are early, but I don't think we have a brand, um, I know we don't, that isn't performing at, you know, at the at either equal to or above everybody in the space. And so, you know, listen, I say that, you know, sort of patting us on the back because I'm very proud of that. Everybody, every company has different strategies. We think this strategy is a winning strategy because it delivers better products for our customers over time that, that meet the market, you know, in a modern context. And it's better from a return point of view because we're doing it with blood, sweat, and tears and not investing capital. And so, you know, it's an infinite return and better for the customers is sort of how do you not like it? Many of those brands, not all, and I'll talk about that, have been in the mid-market. Why? Because that's the biggest opportunity. And so, you know, we're trying to serve any customer for any need they have anywhere they want in the world. But obviously, you know, we we have focused a lot on where the big markets are, where the big addressable, you know, TAMs are, total addressable markets. And there's no way you could debate that every segment is important, but the mid-market is where the people are. I mean, the big the big demographic trend in the world, I don't have to tell anybody on this call, is growing middle classes all over the world, right? And that's, so that's where the money is, and those people can afford mid-market mid hotels. And so when you wake up in 10 or 20 years, the bulk of the room's growth in the world, thus the bulk of the money that's going to be made is in the mid-market. So that's why we have focused there. But we have not focused – exclusively there. We've done a bunch of things in the lifestyle space, you know, with Urban Micro like Motto, with Tempo, um, with Canopy at the, you know, at the upper up, up or upscale lifestyle segment. And obviously, you know, in the luxury space, we have made huge strides. I mean, Waldorf existed but wasn't really a brand. And Conrad was not m much to speak about. And LXR didn't exist. And so, We've gone from essentially a few hotels to 100 world-class luxury hotels with another nearly 60 in the pipeline. And by the way, uh, I said it, but um, this morning, if you look at Bloomberg or whatever, Walter Vistoria is ranked the number one luxury brand, Eclipse Ritz-Carlton, um, in, in customer satisfaction in North America. So we're making really good strides there. And I think there are more opportunities. I would say, you know, listen, we've talked about this for a long time, and the only reason we haven't done it is because we've had other market opportunities that we thought would drive, would serve more customers, drive higher growth, and create more value for shareholders. But luxury lifestyle is definitely, I mean, we're in and around the lifestyle segment. LXR, to a degree, is sort of luxury lifestyle, but we don't have a pure hard brand in the luxury lifestyle space, we will. Uh, you know, I would say, you know, we're doing developmental work there. We want to give our, our babies Spark and H3. Well, H3, we need to give a name, which we're close to. And, and then we need to, you know, make sure they, they become little toddlers and are, are successful. Um, but we're doing developmental work in luxury lifestyle. I would expect in the next year we'll, we'll launch something in that space to sort of add, you know, to the three brands we have 
already in the luxury space to give us another shot on goal for luxury opportunities around around the world. But the but the and so luxury and lifestyle are hugely important to us because customers like it, and we give them lots and lots of opportunities. But again, the 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 big you know the big mass market um, opportunity every in every major market in the world um, is is the mid market is you know and and so you know we are not ashamed of saying you know we we are we have every intention to have the best brands in every market to serve mid markets because we think that's where the the most money will be made over the next ten or twenty or thirty years. Understood. And if I can just follow up on on one detail, and if I'm, you know, be, over beating a horse, uh, you know, apologies. With respect to the nug for the remainder of this year, um, I just want to be, you know, as clear as possible about whether, you know, there was some, you know, one tough comps, uh, you know, pull forward or, you know, any projects that have slid into next year that are you know elevating not really i'm not really i mean i you know not really as i said in the last call i said around five percent if you go listen to it maybe three okay. times i mean a, a little bit although it's not meaningful i mean listen we we were hoping from from the standpoint of you know the momentum that we have in spark we were hoping to have 50 hotels open this year I think by the last quarter we realized that that wasn't going to happen. But, you know, we're going to have, as I said, we're going to probably have 20. There's no problem. I mean, we have 400 deals in negotiation with hundreds more coming over the threshold. It's just, you know, we and the supply chain stuff now set up and moving. It just was a lot of moving parts as we get set up. And so, you know, that, you know, that probably had a has a teeny bit of impact. I mean, you know, 20 to 50 is a few thousand is a few thousand rooms, but otherwise, not not really, not really. Not. I mean, again, I said around five. I'm still. We still think it's around five. Yeah, David. I think. Thank I, you so I, much. I think I, I think I not to not to go too far on. I think I'd just add that there, there, there's a reason why we signaled five last quarter. Another quarter has gone by. So you, so the second quarter, sort of in terms of openings, played out the way we were thinking it would, which is why we were signaling. We weren't yet ready to adjust the official guidance. All we've done now is crystallize with a half a year in the books and a half a year left that what we thought was going to happen in the second quarter happened. And then if you think about, you know, the momentum, I mean, Chris already talked about this, but the momentum in approvals and starts, I'd say, was a better experience in the second quarter than we were expecting a quarter ago. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. The next question comes from Smeeds Rose with City. Please go ahead. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about occupancy levels. Um, when we look at the U.S. data, and I think this is true, you know, for Hilton versus 2019, there's, there's a reasonable sort of gap to, to prior peak occupancy levels or pre-pandemic occupancy levels. But it sounds like from what you're saying, you think maybe the continued improvement in group trends will kind of close that gap, or is there maybe something else you're seeing, or do you think it's just structurally lower going forward? Just kind of curious how you think that evolves over the next, through the balance of the year and maybe just going forward. Yeah, for us, it's it's been better than the industry. We're three or four percentage points off of, depending on when you look at it, off of peak occupancies. I think that you sort of noted some of the issues. I think um, 
part of it is, you know, is happening because the group, it's still, you know, group is getting there, but it's, you know, it's still, you know, building. Um, you know, part of it, is, and that's impacting a bunch of the cities, right, that that um, have recovered a lot, most of them. There are a couple of exceptions or one big exception, but most of the cities have recovered. But from an occupancy point of view, they're still off because they don't have the big city-wide spec. So I do I do think it it is partly the group. And then the other thing that's going on is I sort of kid not to, to be a smartass about it, but part of it's pricing, right? So if you said to me, could we drive occupancy consistent with the prior peak, the answer is, yeah, I could probably do it in the next couple of days, but it wouldn't be the right answer. Meaning, you know, we were pushing hard on price because we've been obviously in a higher, highly inflationary environment. And for the, for the standpoint of trying to make our hotel owners the most money, you know, that relative trade is the right trade. Keep pushing price hard, even though it might impact occupancy, the bottom line is better because the flow through on rates a heck of a lot better than the flow through on occupancy. So part of this is, yeah, there's still groups coming back. Yeah, business transient is still, you know, particularly the big corporates are only, you know, 92% back. Part of, And they'll come back no matter what they say, by the way, over the next few years, they'll come back. You, you know, you heard it here. I'm telling you, they'll come back. Um, but, but, a, but, a, but a bigger part of it is honestly – um, yield management strategies. I mean, we're really trying to push rate, and we don't want to give it. We, you know, we're not we're not as worried because it's a it's a better outcome for everybody. But a better outcome for us. Our owners make more money, drive higher margins. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. The next question comes from Brant Montour with Barclays. Please go ahead. Um, hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks for taking my question. Just just to follow up on that, Chris. Um, you know, industry ADR growth has been tracking below inflation since uh, April. Um, you know, inflation is probably expected to ease further. And I know you're probably, you know, your pricing based on supply and demand and you're pushing rate. And but I'm trying just to reconcile those two forces as we look into the back half of this year. And maybe you could also just add in, you know, what your core SME or your core um, business transient ADR pricing growth is looking like. And if that is, you know, is in excess of inflation today. The answer is yes. I mean, there is a, a tiny disconnect in timing, but I'd say the core pricing of our of our transient products, whether that's leisure or uh, leisure transient or business transient, is keeping up with inflation at its current levels. And obviously, we expect that to continue to come down. We we feel good about the pricing power again, with all the assumptions I already commented on about my view or the macro view that we're, we've adopted for the back half of the year and as we go into next year. Um, and we think the broader environment is is generally supportive for continued rate strength. I mean, the one, the one thing, you know, it's funny we talk, I, I kid our team around here, it's like we've been living a little bit in bizarro world coming, you know, through COVID, obviously, and then in the aftermath where it used to all be about fundamentals. That's all we would ever talk about on these calls. That's all I'd ever talk about with investors, the fundamentals of demand, what's going on with demand, and what's going on with supply. In bizarro world, nobody talks, nobody cares about supply. But we're normalized. I mean, everything is, is, is getting reasonably close to a more normalized environment. Prices are higher, okay, but that's just a broader reset that's happened throughout the entire economy, which I think, you know, unless you have broad disinflation, which it doesn't feel like that's happening anytime soon, that's sustained. And so you've sort of set a new 
you know, water level, if you will, for pricing. And then eventually in the very near term, it's going to get back to basic fundamentals, like what's going on with base demand and what's going on in supply. And I think the thing that doesn't get enough attention, like thankfully, as you can see in our starts and signings and NUG and our expectations for the future, we get a heck of a lot more than our fair share. But what's really going on in supply, particularly in the U.S., is anemic levels of industry growth that are sub if the if the 30-year average is two and a half percent, it's running at like 0.8, and it will be, and it's been running low. And given the environment, it's going to stay low. And so, when you get to a you know more normalized environment, which is we're sort of morphing uh, slowly into over the next year or two, um, you're going to find yourself in an environment where demand should be reasonably healthy if the economy is okay against a historically low supply side environment in the industry. And so I think it's going to feel pretty good, and I think it's going to be another factor for sustaining performance and, and rate integrity. Great. Thanks for all that color. The next question comes from Dwayne Fenningworth with Evercore ISI. Please go ahead. Hey, thanks. Good morning. Um, can you talk a little bit about the profile of your owners uh, for new development and, and how that may be changing? With the with the signings activity you talked about in the second half of last year, first half of this year, any new trends or, or maybe some surprises you could speak to with respect to, you know, the organizations or the individuals that are d uh, investing in new development? Yeah, Dwayne, I'd say, look, no surprises, really. I mean, I think Chris mentioned in his prepared remarks, I mean, I think half of the Spark owners are new to Hilton, right? And that's not a surprise to us when you're heading into a different segment, you're heading into a different group of owners. And we view that as a positive thing, right? You're filling the top of the funnel with a lot more demand for the product going forward. You're diversifying your owner base even further. I mean, we've always had a really diversified owner base but we're diversifying it even further, and we're responding to, if you think about Chris said before, and when he answered David's question, it was like evolving the product base to respond to where the demand is. Well, the owner base evolves in that same way too, right? The capital follows the opportunities. And so if we were living in a world, you know, not that long ago where 70 to 80% of our deals every year were with existing owners, we're still doing the same absolute amount of volume with our existing owners. In fact, I, I have to assume, I don't have the stats in front of me, I have to assume we're doing more business with our existing owners, but then we're actually adding a whole lot more owners around the world. You know, so I think globally we're down to like 50 or 60% of our deals are with existing owners annually. So no surprises, but we view it as a huge net positive for the business. Yeah, the other the other minor theme that I think that's well said is on H3. Um, I mentioned in my comments it's it's a hybrid and it's probably more more apartment than hotel. Um, we've been really uh, excited about the institutional interest that we have from larger institutions that either want to develop or work with a partner and fund the development of large numbers of H3 just because of the cost to build, the, you know, it's, we think, a 60% kind of margin business, and, you know, they really like the segment of demand and its existing profile and growth profile. So that's been not surprising because we, when we were, <clears throat> when we were developing H3, that was our hope and, and expectation, but it's nice to see it come to life. I mean, as I said, we're negotiating 300 deals, and 
that's not with 300 different people at this point. We've barely opened it up. This is this is with a relatively limited number of very well-heeled, more institutional-type players. We will ultimately open the floodgates on H3 once we get it going, but it's, it's been very nice to see. Thank you. The next question comes from Robin Barley with UBS. Please go ahead. Great, thank you. Um, obviously, great news on the the Revpar outlook. I did have a question uh, circling back to the net unit growth. Um, you, you mentioned Spark, and and maybe it sounds like some timing in China that was a little bit pushed out. But when we think about um, you know the strong start numbers that you've talked about, can you help us think about timing of you know interest rates are still moving up a little bit here, and obviously some of those big increases in in um, starts are due to sort of comping the the pandemic, so there's there's that going on, you know, making making the comps look different than normal. I guess just trying to think about the timing from here, and in terms of the factors, like what has everything? Do you think bottomed? It seems like maybe not yet in terms of um, with interest rates still moving up. But help us think about the timing of like rates moving up, starts being high, but and kind of where you see things um, bottoming in, in terms of uh, of that. Thanks. Yeah, just for the record, in the signings numbers and starts, signings will be above prior high watermarks pretty materially, and and starts will be about the even even though the comps are easy, it'll be about where we were at our prior high watermark. So it's not just the benefit of of comps. I'll let Kevin take the the next part of it, but I mean Spark. The beauty of Spark is it's a very it's a relatively low cost entry product, and so it doesn't really require a lot of financing. But yeah, both I mean I'd say both Spark and H3 are more easily financeable products in this environment. So again, that's not why we launched those brands. We launched those brands because there's a ton of customer and owner demand for the product. But if you think about the way it's playing out, it's sort of another example of diversification being a great thing. We have products that are more financeable. I think our lower-end products around the world are more financeable. And then I think I'd, a couple things I'd guide you to as well. I think in, in when you think about a tighter credit environment, because it's not just rates, it's availability of capital, that's not a that's a Western world phenomenon. It's not just U.S., but it is, it is highly concentrated in the U.S. Only 40% of our deliveries this year are going to be in the U.S., right? So it's a big world out there. We've got a lot of diversification, and I think that for all of the reasons we've given you, we think momentum can continue. And if you think about, I mean, Chris talked about Bizarro World on fundamentals. It's also Bizarro World a little bit on development because, you know, it sort of starts with approvals. You know, you got to sign them. you got to get them in the ground, and then they deliver, and that's all usually on a lag. And we've had COVID, and we've had a bunch of changes, but I think if you think about development being on a lag, it has to start somewhere. So the outlook for approvals and starts bodes well for the future. The fact that we're rounding out the product base with more easily financeable products bodes well for the future. The fact that we have more limited service and lower-end products to deploy in emerging markets bodes well for the future. And it's not to say there won't be hiccups along the way, but we do believe that it's a progression back to normal, if you will, from here. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you. The next question comes from Michael Belisario with Baird. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Just wanted to go back to the new credit card deal uh, that Amex announced on on Friday. You guys didn't mention it, so maybe hoping you could provide any commentary or incremental fees or economics that you expect to receive, and then maybe what's new or different in this deal versus uh, what you last signed in 2017. 
Yeah, I think look, there's there's a there's a you know a fair amount of that is competitively sensitive, and we're not going to get into a lot of details. But I can sort of give you a sense for you know what's new and different. I think look, the economics are a little bit better, um, you know, but which is as a result of the program just being better. I think our you know if you look at total spend in the program for this year, it's going to be about two thirds higher than it was in 2019, right? So we're we're growing the program massively. It's been a hugely successful partnership with American Express. Um, we believe that those we, we've we've said we don't give you a lot of details to unpack it, and we apologize for that. But again, it's pretty it's pretty sensitive competitively. It's been growing ahead of algorithm. We think it'll continue to grow at or ahead of algorithm over time. It's a 10-year deal. I think a lot of people would have predicted the last time we did a, a credit card deal that that credit cards were going to go somehow go away and be replaced by other forms of payments. I think I think it's quite the contrary. I think travel. Um, co-brand cards have become extremely successful and attractive products. They drive engagement across the system. It's not just about the economics on the card, um, and I think Amex feels the same way. So we're super excited about the deal, and probably will stop short on you know too too many um, more um, details than what we've already said. Got it. And then just one follow-up: any incremental economics included in the uh, increased full-year guidance from the credit card deal? I mean, we've we've been assuming that we've been working on this for a while, so I think there's nothing nothing new on that front. Got it. Thank you. Sure. The next question comes from Chad Benyon with McCary. Please go ahead. Morning. Thanks for taking my question. Uh, wanted to ask about the own portfolio. The performance in the quarter recovered better than. M&F fee portfolio, uh, leading to some of the positive variants versus your Q2 uh, midpoint EBITDA guide. Um, Kevin, you noted, I think, strength in, in Europe and Japan, obviously, where you probably have some of the smaller uh, concentration. But can you kind of help us think if the outlook has changed for this segment as we kind of look into the back half of the year, given how much improvement you saw in the second quarter, does that give you more confidence that you could see some margin improvement in just overall EBITDA growth year over year on the back half. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot there. First of all, the whole portfolio is concentrated effectively in UK, Ireland, Europe, and Japan. So particularly Central Europe and Japan have been quite strong. The, there's there's no real sort of change in the. I mean, there, we, a little bit of you know year over year growth um, for subsidies last year, but that's just that's just a little bit of noise. I think basically there's operating leverage in the business, right? They're owned hotels, they're leases, right? So there's even more operating leverage than than a regular owned hotel. So they've been growing at a rate that is quite in, in excess of the overall fee business. As long as fundamentals stay growing, that will continue to be the case. Um, and I think we our outlook for the segment is a little bit better now this quarter than it was last quarter because our outlook for Europe and Japan is better. Thanks. Appreciate it. Sure. The next question comes from Richard Clark with Bernstein. Please go ahead. Good morning. Yes, um, just on the, uh, the two new brands, Clark um, and H3, are, are those going to be enough to get U.S. snug back up to 5% back of the international business of the recovery back to 6 to 7 And then maybe just related to that, obviously you're giving us some nice big numbers on where you think uh, Spark can do in the near term. If I go back to when Motto was launched, about you know, 60 hotels, I think you're at 8, and 10, when you launched Tempo, you talked about maybe 20 to 30. I think you haven't got a 
versus maybe where what those brands achieved in the uh, in the shorter term. Yeah, a good question. I, I think the answer is yes on not just Spark and H3 in the U.S., but Home 2 in the U.S., Hampton's growing in the U.S., I'll come back, Tempo is just getting started. So I think the combination of all of those brands, the, you know, the benefit of conversions in soft brands will get us back, um, I am confident, to those levels. The difference between, like, a, a, a Tempo and a Motto and Spark is night and day, honestly. I mean, here's what happened to Tempo and Motto. We, we, we launched them about a day before the pandemic, and they are all, they are all new build. I mean, it's pretty much with both those brands. There's some adaptive reuse that, that will go on, but it is vast majority of those are new builds. And so we got into COVID. There was no financing. Everything slowed down. Those brands, I think, will will do incredibly well. I think Tempo, we have, I don't even have the pipeline number in my head, but as we open Times Square, we've got dozens of those under development around around the country. We're getting ready to take the show on the road around the world. And now that we're in, a, you know, even though the environment, you know, has some uncertainty in financing and all that, it's a heck of a lot better than it was in COVID. So you'll start to see a great trajectory, and, that, and Tempo, there's nothing wrong. Tempo is great. Owners love it. It's just, you know, COVID got in the way. Basically, same same for Motto. Spark's a totally different thing. One, it's not we're not in COVID. Um, while there are challenges, you know, out there, it's a 100%, 100% conversion brand, um, and it's basically taking, you know, hotels that are in much weaker brands and converting them into our system where there's huge opportunities for market share gains, and it doesn't cost in, in, in terms of the quantum of money to do it. It's a relatively low ticket um, for owners to do it. That's why we have so much um, interest. So I think the ramp on that will be much, much faster, um, and, it, and it's a very different, very different thing. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't diminish the opportunities in – Motto and and uh, and Tempo. They're gonna, you know, particularly Tempo. Motto's, you know, a micro hotel and just the biggest urban markets. We'll do a lot more of them, but I mean, Tempo will be a mega brand. It just it just got caught up in uh, getting launched a, a minute before COVID. Yeah, I wouldn't connect. It's a short, sh- shorter way of saying I wouldn't connect too many dots. I mean, the world is just different, and the brands, as Chris said, are different. And again, the the, the beauty of Spark is you don't have to get a building built to to do a Spark. It's all going to be buildings that are already built. Thanks. Thanks very much. Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes our question and answer session. I would now like to turn the call back to Chris Nasetta for any additional or closing remarks. Thank you, MJ. Uh, everybody, we appreciate, as we always do, you spending a little bit of your morning with us. We know it's a busy time and lots of earnings releases. We obviously um, remain really optimistic. Obviously, Q2 was a great quarter for us. Uh, that's flowing through, plus some, given our expectations the second half of the year. Again, we're optimistic you know, on our unit growth and, and optimistic for one, not just the, the end of this year, but in the next year we'll be able to deliver, but most importantly, the algorithm that we've described is alive and well and working, and we continue to grow. We continue to maintain incredible cost discipline. Um, The company's at the highest margins by 800 basis points that it's ever run at, thus producing the greatest amount of free cash flow 
in our history, and we intend to be super disciplined about how we allocate that, otherwise known as giving giving it back to our shareholders. And so, um, in any event, we'll look forward after Q3 to giving you an update on uh, on how everything is going. I hope everybody has a great rest of the summer. The conference has now concluded. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect your lines.